Hello, and welcome back to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. I'm your host, Joelle Maldonado. I'm also known as the Grave Woman. Have you ever heard the phrase, eat the fish and spit out the bones? Or don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? These sayings are deeply rooted in African and indigenous proverbs. Proverbs were used historically to give a very deep and intense and meaningful messages in as few words possible for various reasons. Proverbs, also known as parables or euphemisms, are used worldwide in Black and Indigenous cultures to communicate things of importance and value in addition to storytelling and story sharing passed down generation to generation. Believe it or not, parables, proverbs, and euphemisms are used by African-Americans, Blacks, and Indigenous people to express needs, thoughts, ideas, desires, and wants, and are considered to be forms of communication that not only preserve culture, but also language. There's a misconception and inaccurate depiction in social media, in popular culture, and in life in general that black and people of color do not plan for the end of life. My guests today are going to help me dispel and explore the origins of this misconception, as well as hopefully articulate exactly how it is that we as African-Americans and other people of color and indigenous lineage not only plan for, but execute our end-of-life plans. This is many times done through the use of parables, proverbs, euphemisms, and storytelling. Zena Regis is a minister, chaplain, coach, and grief recovery specialist who serves as Faith Outreach Manager for Compassion and Choices. Dr. Elijah Hall is a mental health, cultural edification, and strategic planner for African and Indigenous elders, families, and communities. He serves for Compassion and Choices in the role of co-director of Social Enterprise. Welcome, Zena and Dr. Elijah Hall. How are you doing today, Zena? I am doing well. I am so excited to be on this podcast with you. I love your work and I've been a huge fan for a long time. So I am great. Thank you so much. It always kind of trips me up when people say like, I'm a huge fan because I'm like, I'm literally just a girl on YouTube living everyday life. <laughs> like <laughs> So much more than that. Love um, you. Thank you. Dr. Hall, how are you doing today? Oh, it's great. It's a great day to be talking about this conversation. Um, it's great to be on your your, your show, uh, especially, you know, um, having been in the other seat with you. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to you and the and the interview, you interviewers. Awesome. So this podcast is all about dismantling the, the perspective that Black people don't plan for end of life in any capacity. Um, as I shared with you guys before, in my opinion, that's a very privileged statement because a lot of times we are in a constant trauma response mode or in a mode of we're just going to have to deal with that or it or whatever the thing is when it happens. And over the past three years, specifically in response to the pandemic, I've had more people of color, specifically Black families, come into the funeral home, grief spaces, and other end-of-life places with plans. They may not be the traditional plans that we're used to, like insurance policies or estate plans. However, they are plans, as I was sharing with you guys before, here in South Carolina, land is a huge commodity. It's been passed down generation to generation. Come into the funeral home and expect to barter land for funeral services. And if you really think about that, to me, that says something because they're not making any more land. Land is of much higher value um, than a lot of the traditional services that are rendered around this part. However, 
people have it in their mind that I can pay for this with this. And I'd like to know your opinions and your insight on what you've seen as far as how we do prepare for end of life and death. Zena, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I had the um, honor of serving as a hospice chaplain in a hospice that whose patient census was 95% African-American. Um, and so it's interesting that now I do this work and I see that the utilization of hospice by African-Americans is, is very low statistically, but like that was like, I was like, oh, really? That's so interesting because my, my experience was totally different in the hosp particular hospice that I worked for. Um, but in that, I, I began to really see that like this idea of, first of all, the idea of advanced care planning and end of life planning can be so, so much in legalistic and financial and material terms when I think many in our community think of it in terms of spiritual and communal and storytelling terms. And so that's why it doesn't map in the same way. And so, so many of my patients would not have a thing written down, but just through story and um, conversation, like people were really aware what mama wanted, what daddy wanted, what mama wanted, like it, the conversation was there often. Um, and I think a lot that when we are denied so much like autonomy and dignity in life, that those things become really, really important in death. And so people had really strong opinions on what they wanted their death experience and like legacy to be because of that. And like in my own life, I've seen that like with my father, he died uh, last November and he, he did not write down everything he wanted, but we were super clear um, about what he wanted. And so it was really beautiful. So people would say like he didn't plan, but he did because he told his children and his spouse and his siblings exactly what he wanted. And we were able to to make that happen because we had had those conversations. My condolences to you and your family. Um, I can imagine that the holidays were an intense time for you guys. How did you navigate that? Yeah, that's, um, I am really, really grateful that I have, that I've had this experience in working in this space, because I think because we talked about death and dying so much that it didn't lessen the grief at all, but it really helped us process it. And because we were so aware of what my dad wanted, um, we were able to know he had the death experience that he wanted. And so there is not a day, like I have a big portrait of my father sitting over my desk. Like he was my person. Anybody who knows me knows that I am a daddy's girl. Um, so many pictures of me as a little girl have me sitting on his shoulders, you know, like, you know, that's just, that's, that, that's my person. But, um, I, I had actually, I have a really wonderful African-American therapist. And she said to me, your legacy is being a well-loved woman. Mm. And that sticks with me all the time because I, I certainly was very well loved and am well loved. And she's like, you live in his legacy of love every day. And so that really is, um, that that's what keeps me going. Wow. Um, I'm going to have to shift to Elijah because that statement is bringing tears to my eyes. Um, oh, Elijah, what about you? How have you seen pre-planning and pre-planning amongst African-American people in particular show up in non-conventional ways? Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, the question. And thank you, Zena, for, for sharing that. Um, you know, even as a... Uh, a colleague of uh, Miss Regis, you know, we don't often have this kind of conversation. So this is also for the first time that I'm learning uh, some of the details around some of that. And, you know, it is through conversation that we learn these things, you know, it is through dialogue. Um, I am a uh, member of a organization called Ashe, um, the Chicago Association of, of, of Story Black Storytellers. They're a, kind of a part of this la national organization NABS, the National Association of Black Storytellers. And, and the beauty of this organization is that, of course, it's elders. It's, it's, it's Black elders all across the country that we work with. And you, in working with them, I am face to face with what they are dealing with, with this conversation. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, you know, um, one of our members has been in hospice care, has been in the as nursing home, and 
Uh, we just had to raise $8,000 over the last two weeks to pay rent, to pay all of her expenses to, you know, because she does not have the money they were going to put her out. The nursing home care that she is getting is insufficient and is not what, what um, the members are upset and they're frustrated about it. So now you've got elders going to the nursing home, trying to hold the nursing home accountable, moving her from nursing home to nursing home. We just had an emotional call about, um, um, what's, you know, you know, whether or not she's even going to be able to return home, you know, and, 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 and making plans. And this is really uh, taking the whole, or the whole organization, you know, uh, uh, back a bit. And, and I think that, you know, and, and in these conversations still, that we know that it's not that we don't plan. Oftentimes we are not just dealing with trauma, but we're also trying, you know, doing everything we can to, to, to survive and thrive. And that we don't understand that those responses, um, you know, as they say, when we look at uh, people who are, are dealing with, uh, especially people dealing with poverty all over the world, it is actually something that prevents you from doing so much simply because you have this thing in front of you that you really are trying to address. So, and, and that's, now you add on racism, add on, you know, these other isms, these other structural institutional frameworks. Um, yeah, it's, you know, oh, we didn't plan X, Y, and Z. Yeah, because we're dealing with A, B, and C. So I think that that's what we're seeing. And when you are with people who are dealing with this on an everyday basis, that's when you learn. Um, however, we've seen again, again, and again, people in the public light, people who have money, people who would assume, you know, we can assume have time, you know, who, who may have some separation from that, who are still not. And so that means there is a much deeper issue here. And I, and, and there are even people who talk about how this European way of, you know, sending people away to these homes and to these is not working. It's not working for us. It's not working for white people but we are the ones who are experiencing the greatest loss uh, because in the African and indigenous framework, our elders are libraries. And when you lose an elder, you lose a library, right? So they are much more valuable to us than, than other communities simply because of the value we place in them. And I think we need to preserve and, and really plan and protect them. 100% um, and thank you both for those responses. You both said two things that stand out to me. Um, Vina, you touched on euphemisms briefly. Um, at least that's what I heard. And Elijah, you touched on the importance of storytelling, which is a conversation in itself. But I, um, I'm curious to know from both of you, working so closely with the elder and those that are in transition, how do euphemisms um, show up? And I'll give the perfect example. I am partially responsible for the care of my 86-year-old grandmother who lives with my mom. And she'll say things, but you know how older Black women are. They say things, but they don't say them directly. It's like a dance around what you're saying. And I've gotten very good in the last year of picking up very quickly. So I imagine um, working in a healthcare environment where everyone has all of this technical knowledge, they have all of this book knowledge, and you're sitting next to a Black patient and they're saying something like, well, I need to get my house in order. They may have no idea what that means. So how, Zena, do you bridge the gap between euphemistic exchange and um, technical knowledge for those that you support on both ends? Oh, this is such an amazing question. I, um, when I first started as a hospice chaplain, I imagined, I don't know, I read all these books, like What the Dying Want, Final Gifts, Final Wishes, all these things that are really important and great books. But I learned very quickly that my main job was to be an advocate for my patients and to be a translator. Um, because so often, exactly as you said, there's all this euphemistic language, even something little. I thought about this today. I would I worked closely with the hospice social worker and she was white um, and just an amazing social worker. But one little thing, like she never said miss or missus to elder black women. And she would wonder why they were just real stank to her. And I'm like, sis, you got to go in there and, and say Mrs. or Miss. Like you are a 25-year-old woman. You cannot call her Cynthia. That's not going to nope. work. Um, and so it was in that way, like, why are they, what's this wall? And so 
So that was one thing, but it was also those, um, it is those, those, those euphemisms, like I got, you know, exactly like you said, I had to get my house in order or one that I love every shut eye sleep, you know, like when you walk in or somebody sleep, like all these things and it's like, no, like you have to really ask. And I think so often healthcare professionals can really get caught up in technical language. Um, when I'm like, you have to just ask people what their understanding of their condition is, what their understanding of their prognosis is, and what, how would they like to see their care plan, you know, play out? Um, and so those questions would be such, just like, let's cut all of this. People don't know. And then also on the opposite side, I have seen healthcare professionals use language Non-compliant is a language is is a, a term I really dislike because I would hear um, healthcare professionals call a patient non-compliant, um, and that comes with it a host of things. And I'm like, you can't ask someone to be compliant to something they don't understand, um, or so you haven't been really clear about. So this whole idea of like they're a difficult non-compliant patient. Um, it's just something that I hated to see so much because that label can follow people and definitely influence the type of care that they receive. Um, and so as um, from a consumer standpoint, I encourage um, especially Black hospice patients to really make sure they have someone, an advocate of some kind in there when they are receiving care, um, a clergy person, a health, another healthcare professional, a niece who works in the hospital, like whatever to like be able to act and kind of translate those barriers because having another voice um, and another ear can be so important to making sure you know exactly what your care plan looks like. And also having someone who has a language, like even when my dad was in the hospital, I have a friend who's a doctor and she gave me the terms because she's like, these are the things that you need to ask. Even, even someone who I worked you know, in healthcare, I still didn't know that I need to ask every day, what is what is the plan of care for him today? You know, all these things. And she was like, they'll pay more attention to you. So it's on both sides, really navigating this language. And one of the things we want to come up with for Compassion and Care, specifically our Faith Leaders Program, is um, a glossary of terms. Because so many mm -hmm. pastors, there's this idea that, Black pastors don't want to help people plan at the end of life. And I have not found that to be true. Um, they really want to help because it helps them um, be able to facilitate a holy, you know, a sacred transition in a way that honors um, people's lives and their face and their priorities. And so they want the tools. But one thing that just came up on a call, they were like, we don't have the language, you know, like we, the glossary, like I feel one of the things that came up, language changes in healthcare so quickly. So they're like, when we were talking about, you know, terminal illness, they don't talk about that anymore. They talk about life limiting illness and trying to map what is, what are we actually talking about? And so that's one of the things our faith leaders want to come up with in time for, um, Healthcare Decisions Day in April is a glossary of terms for people of faith so that they can know what, what is being said in these conversations. Definitely. Um, and you just gave me like three follow-up questions, but I want to hear a little bit from Elijah about how euphemisms show up in storytelling and how you bridge the gap. I'm sorry, from Dr. Hall, my apologies, about how euphemisms show up in storytelling and how you bridge the gap between the professionals that you're holding account accountable, as you mentioned, with the elderly woman that is in danger of being um, displaced from her home. How do you connect those bridges for those that aren't familiar with our, our language? Absolutely. I, I appreciate the question. And, you know, Zena is absolutely right. Um, there's a cultural... Uh, you know, kind of um, conduct and a culture of vernacular, if you will, that we understand. And, and this is why when we talk about this on a systemic level, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about the lack of, you know, uh, you know, real kind of cultural equity in, in this death and dying space. And what the reason why we can say that is because there's a lack of cultural equity in the education system. There's a lack of cultural equity, you know, in uh, uh, the workplace. There's a, it's all over. And so we are not surprised to see it in this death and dying and end of life care playing 
space. However, we it's unfortunate that we have to, you know, we're still arguing whether or not there's a problem, right? That's where, that's where, why are we even talking about that? Yeah, there's a problem, right? Because of all, there's a, there's an issues in all these other spaces as well. And we've been talking about them for decades. So absolutely, you know, when we talk, we do have a language, we do have a, a certain kind of cultural um, vernacular and, and, and that's, in, in, in that vernacular is how we move is is our heritage is you know Zena talked about this sacredness you know that's that is a part of that's that's what we come from. For example, when we talk about euphemisms we're not just talking about this you know kind of funny thing that people say. But euphemisms actually come from proverbs proverbs are African they are the most profound the most you know they define the largest ideas these big concepts in a word in a sentence in a sentence or two and they have been here for thousands of years generation to generation they are an oral tradition they are passed down they don't have to be written and this is why the elders know them, they say them, and this is why then they get to us all the way over here across the water and we call in the movement and we're still like, what? Because they're still living on past. They're still continuing on, right? A perfect example. There's a, uh, so one of the euphemisms I like is uh, I was born at night, not last night, right? Just to throw that, that out there. But another example of a proverb that is that's so perfect for this conversation, and it explains the difference between the African and indigenous worldview and the European worldview and model is this proverb from the Akan, which comes out of Ghana. And the proverb says, we must prepare with the understanding of Sankofa. Now, Sankofa is an indinkra symbol. It means to go back and fetch in order to know where you're going. So this proverb says, we must prepare with the understanding of Sankofa seven, and go back seven generations in order to prepare for the next seven generations. So they're talking about 14 generations. That's an African proverb that comes from, from, from Ghana. How can we say that we don't come from a culture of planning? How can we say that we come from a history of planning? How can we say that we are not about planning? That is end of life planning. That's beyond life planning. That, and that's intergenerational planning. That is our legacy. We have to own it. We have to know it. We have to learn it. We have to teach it. And lastly, I'll say this. What I am seeing is that there's a there's a difference between storytelling, which is, you know, the storytellers, they get up, they prepare these stories, they learn these stories, they write these stories, whatever. It might be an Anansi story, however, whatever. That's the storytelling and story sharing. Okay, so what Zena shared about her father, what I shared about the member I'm with, like what we share when we see these experiences. We have to, the story sharing is what propels people to move and to act and to, to oh, there's something that we connect with. Oh, I see, oh, I didn't know that was going. We do both as black people, right? We story share, we do our storytellers, we're story sharers. And, and through that sharing is how we are able to support each other, to love each other, to be compassionate in our, 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 our in, in this, in this work. And I think that that's extremely important. So um, what I've seen is that through story sharing, the elders and others are able to look after one another, to care for one another, to tell, and that's what it's, and that's what, you know, it, it, a part of that conversation was learn from this, you all don't let this happen to you. She's going through this now you know, plan and, and do better for your, you and your families. I just have to say thank you, thank you, thank you to both of you because my mind is literally exploding <laughs> based on the information and just the, the passion from which you all speak. Um, so there, it's proven that more and more of us Black African lineaged individuals are separating more and more from Christianity and a European perspective of life, death, God, our, our place here, not only in this country, but in the world, or this universe, space and time, however far back you want to take it. Do you feel as if that could possibly be because we are waking up to this and because the frequency of I don't know, the internet, social media, what we have access to has opened something within us spiritually, not just mentally and visually. 
I'll take it, you know, absolutely, you know, and it's not just the internet. It's also a spiritual movement. It is a spiritual transformation. It's a spiritual transcendence because the truth is going to win in the end. And I think that when you suppress our identity, our culture, our heritage, our lineage, our history, you know, the, the truth about where we come from, the truth about how great we are, the, you know, all of these things, then it can only be suppressed for a certain amount of time. It cannot be suppressed forever. And even if you remove social media, that <laughs> truth is going to come out, right? And I think that social media has only exasperated it, accelerated it. It's only kind of, you know, um, kind of been a kindling, if you will. But the the spark has already been there because at the end of the day, the that that spiritual consciousness wants to write itself. And we want to write ourselves as 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 as, as African uh, and you know uh, descendants and 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 people who are constantly looking for uh, the answers to questions around where do we come from you know who's in my family where who's this person how far how far back can I go in terms of my lineage you know there's just so much there right now for those that want to. So dive deeper, there's a lot of resources, a wealth of information. Um, and I think it's very, it's very, very exciting. Definitely. What are your thoughts, Zena? Yeah. Um, I, one of my roles is I served as a, the campus chaplain at Columbia Theological Sem Seminary last year. And it was amazing to see these students who are studying to be pastors, Christian pastors, really be in this space of being like, if it's a faith that doesn't allow questions, I don't want it. Um, and so that was just really, really powerful to see over and over. And I think also this comes from this, from a real, like, I think it's always been there, you know, this undercurrent, but we are really, I think language is so important that we've talked about that a lot in this conversation and being able to name the white supremacy that is in this religion that so many people adhere to has been really powerful. Just being able to name it and then be able to say like, but why, <laughs> you know, and, and to be able to ask like, why, why is this our belief? And also to see just all of the, you know, people having spaces to have these dialogues and questions and um, conversations, I think. And I think that's where social media can come in because it's like, you can see very quickly like these conversations. And even if you wanna like be like, no, I don't believe that, you still are exposed to it and able to be like, so why did I have that reaction to this? Um, and another thing I saw a tweet and I, so I, I can't even, um, attribute it to who it was, but it was it was a tweet that said something along the lines of, we have seen people follow this religion and not be better people and not be better parents and not, you know, and not, you know, and still be able to throw their gay children out of the house or their trans children out of the house. And, you know, we've seen this religion of love not show a lot of love. And so I think that's another thing people are really getting to the core of not a dogma, but what are the guiding beliefs? What are the principles I want to honor in my life? And how do I do that spiritually? And how do I grapple with the questions of life? How do I have a faith that liberates and not one that con constrains and oppresses and condemns? And, and so I love to see the conversations that are happening in all aspects and all spectrums in, in the church, because People are like, Zena, you're an old church lady. And so in many ways I am, but then I also am like, I can bounce from a church to um, a Buddhist temple, to a Baha'i place of worship, um, to, you know, wherever, to, to a meditation group. I have a group of Black women that do Sisters in Silence. And so we meditate together. And so like all of these things and people just opening into the ways that we can explore the spiritual realm that influences so much of our life here. It's so interesting that you brought up the Baha'i place of worship um, because my husband's Baha'i and prior to meeting him, I had never heard of a Baha'i or I had no knowledge. And part of us announcing our engagement, we had to go through this 90 day period where he really got to know my family. 
I really got to know him and his community. And I literally, as a grown woman, had to have my parents sign a piece of paper that said they were okay with me marrying into the Baha'i faith because to to them, like with many other cultures, it represents a fortress, not just here, but through eternity. And it was almost like for my grandmother, well, are you giving up Jesus? And I'm like, I hate to tell you this, but (laughs) me and Jesus had that conversation a long time ago. It's not that I don't, you know, believe, I believe in everything. I respect everything, but to just have to have that conversation with my grandmother and my parents and for us to have to agree to raise our children with some of the Baha'i faith or with the Baha'i faith in conjunction with my roots of Christianity and whatever else we decide, it was very eye-opening for me. And of course, we we went through that process wholeheartedly, but it just made me think, why aren't we holding this space for other things? Um, for example, things that are native to us as Black people, I'm sorry, things that are true to us as Black people, such as understanding of the stars and connection with ancestors. Why isn't that a part of the conversation as far as end-of-life planning, healthcare, and so many things? Um, I'm of Gullah and Geechee descent, so ancestral uh, connection and dreams and so many things that are core to me, I have to explain to people in healthcare situations when I say, well, let me consult with my ancestors about it or let me pray about it. I have to articulate what that means. And I'm always curious as to why in healthcare settings where people come from various backgrounds, are these not things that are taught to professionals that are going to be working with these people? How do you all hold space for those that don't have the same beliefs, backgrounds, or may come from religions that are totally foreign to you in the work that you do? I, I love this question. And I think a lot of it um, has to deal with healthcare professionals having some cultural humility about everything and asking questions and not assuming. Um, so often, I can, I mean, I've just had these lists of things like Christians believe this, Black Christians believe this, you know, Hindu patients believe this, and all these things. And I'm like, you could also have a conversation with your patient about their beliefs. And you could respect that and come to it with some real humility that your worldview is not the only worldview. And so I think even more than than teaching healthcare professionals, you know, facts about people's lives, I think it's really about teaching this posture of listening and presence that just is not there um, in so many cases where healthcare professionals want to be the authority um, on everything, even you. And it's like, no, slow down. Um, And so I think in all of these cases, just really listening, it's, and I think also, I think this, this is for all people, but I think especially for Black folks, we need to have some degree of rapport and trust before we can get intimate with our medical and all of that. And so when you are in a room, just barking questions about like, what's this? And haven't asked me how I'm doing, don't know my name, haven't looked at me from my, you know, when I am just a diagnosis to you, we feel that. Um, And so just, I think part of healthcare training has to really look at what is um, a a field I've been looking a lot into is narrative medicine. How are we using stories? How are we using people's experiences, um, lived experiences to influence how we're talking about medicine? And so it really is about listening because I learned very quickly as a chaplain, people don't want to hear what I have to say. They want me to listen to them. And, you know, I don't need to have all the answers. Like the thing is listen, and then we can go from there. And so that's really where I think it starts is just really having a posture of humility and listening um, and presence. I'm going to jump in just for a second before Dr. Hall answers, but (laughs) I love what you said about having to have some type of rapport before becoming intimate because my dad is like that. I mean, most people are like that, but my dad, when he goes to the doctor, he 
he almost expects them to tell him to take his clothes off so that he they can look at his body. How are you going to talk to me about my care if you don't know what's happening at the bottom of my foot? <laughs> like, and I don't know whether that is a personal thing or something that he picked up. He grew up in the country here in South Carolina and much like Ayurvedic medicine, our Gullah Geechee medicine entailed looking at the feet, looking at the eyeballs, opening your mouth and sticking out your tongue. So how are you gonna give me a medication or tell me what's wrong with me without doing those things. So I love that you brought that up. Dr. Hall, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I appreciate that, uh, uh, Zena. And definitely, um, you know, I, I think that one of the things that I uh, look at here is it helps me better understand the, uh, the tragedy really right now for Black people in this healthcare system when not just when you look at the end of life, but when you look at birth, when you look at what's happening at the beginning of life. And the fact of the matter is that this is the same thing we have dealt with when we come to the hospital and say we want a natural birth, then women are saying, you know, we want different, we don't want medication, we, don't, we want it. And it's the same kind of thing. There's, there's, what do you mean you want to do something different? So this is a systemic issue across the whole system where there is a lack of not just, it's not about understanding. They know, they don't care. They don't want, it's like there's a lack of embracing and, and because they have a system that's built on these things cost this much, this, 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 uh, this whole, this, 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 uh, the service cost this much, this action cost this much, these procedures cost this much. We are running this way and you want to do what? <laughs> no, we can't do that. And I think that, that we don't understand that part of it either, right? If we're going to talk about it, we have to talk about the whole industry as a whole. And the hospitals are not there to simply accommodate us. They are there to, to pay the bills. And we don't want to deal with that, unfortunately, but that is the reality. And so oftentimes when, when things are not in capitalism, when things are not operating at the way that they could and or should, it's because they are operating in the interest, the best interest of capitalism, not the best interest of the people. And oftentimes they're especially not operating in the best interest of black people because our interests, needs, values have continually not been met under the system of white supremacy. And we know that. And so absolutely, we have to come in, not just with those kinds of demands and questions and a deeper understanding and, and other people as, 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 as Zena has said, we have to come in with a full-fledged assault. We have to do our research. We have to have, you know, we have to do more just to get the basic level care, just to get the care that other folks, you know, get in their sleep, you know, kind of stumbling in after a long day. So it is, it is intense. It's a lot of pressure on us. Um, and I will just say this as well, a big part of what and but I but I love that we are adamant, we are resilient, and we continue, and we are forcing this system to 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 meet us where we are. We are not acquiescing, and I think that is a beautiful thing that we're seeing. And because of that, we're starting to see changes happening at the hospital, in the hospital system, in, in the healthcare. We're starting to see changes in the nursing homes, et cetera. But it's slow, right? It's not it's not the it, it's it's not what it could be, um, and. And we still need to see more. We need to see medical uh, professionals, student, medical students, doctoral students, I mean, uh, you know, doctors and med students, nurses that are trained with narrative medicine that do have stories. And we're seeing some of it in the research, right? We see, oh, yes, these folks are coming in to, you know, and, and to teach with these future doctors. But it's not across the board. It's not mandated. It's not statewide. It's not, you know, federal. So until we start to see those kind of shifts and swings, we're still going to be running into this, uh, unfortunately, because the reality is, and this is, and when I learned this, I was like, oh, wow, these are doctors that we're asking to care for us in these very intentional, intentional ways are not caring for themselves. They're not even learning how to have self-care in medicine. It does not exist. So how can you you know, uh, really appreciate, I mean, you know, yes, there are naturopathic doctors and, and these kinds of things that that are holistic, you know, that are about that life, but they are few and far between. Um, so I think that we definitely have to push the envelope and push, push back. And in terms of, you know, uh, meeting people who have different cultures and different religious, spiritual traditions and values, you know, I think that it's extremely important, but we also have to see the connections. 
you know, we do something where at, at, at uh, events, I know you're uh, familiar, where we pour libations to honor our ancestors and things of that nature. And it's a, a ceremony that we do, you know, um, and lo and behold, we have black folks here, you know, our brothers and sisters open up when they're about to drink. We got, uh, they pour, they pour a little liquor out. Let me pour a little liquor out for the dead homies. What is that? That's libations. That is an African and indigenous ritual that we have, that has carried with us. And so we, that we still have a lot of these practices. It is innate, but I'll say this as well. Some of the earliest uh, examples of enlightenment come from ancient Kemet, come from ancient Egypt, where we had Mayat, which is 42 laws of what are you going to do? What are you not going to do? Things like, you know, I will not harm nature. I will not harm my body. I will not harm another. I will not, you know, uh, you know, perform adultery. All of those things were in my eye. We're talking 3000 years BC before they have 42 laws. And it was a practice. Woke up, you pray, you said you wouldn't do these things. Then you came home, you prayed out at night you, to say, I did or I didn't do these things. And every day you did this because you were trying to what, achieve and quote, they didn't call it enlightenment, but it was a spiritual uh, ascension that you were looking to achieve and raise yourself to this. So when we talk about, and we also have stories of, you know, the first Trinity with Amin-Ra, his mother and, and his father happening in Kemet. So when we, when we start to really do the research, actually these religious, you know, um, practices, spiritual traditions, are much more connected than we understand. And again, this is about these kind of truths and 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 uh, understandings kind of being, um, you know, um, something that we can kind of come into as more information is shared. Thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Hall and Zena. Uh, just to piggyback off what both you guys said, I spend a lot of time on social media as a part of my work. And I saw a video of a woman who had just delivered a baby. You brought up the birthing system and the way that our system set up here. And this woman was exhausted. She just had a blood transfusion because she lost a lot of blood during labor. And she was in the bathroom flat ironing her hair because she her phrase was the way that they meet you is how they treat you. And I need them to know that I'm serious, not only about my care, but especially the care of my baby. So after going through the beauty and trauma of giving birth, this black woman felt as if she had to flat iron her hair, get up, be uncomfortable standing there for however long it took, lifting her arms and doing everything that it takes to straighten your hair, simply to be taken seriously by her medical team. And that broke my heart. Another example, um, I was looking for it as you were speaking, Zena, I'll insert it here. If anyone's watching on YouTube, you can look at it and see for yourself. It was a pamphlet provided by a healthcare provider. I don't know what their practice was, but it gave descriptions of different ethnicities and what their response to terminal diagnosis or the loss of life would be. And literally for African-American, the description was, and I can't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now, but will fall on the floor, become agitated, aggressive, and angry. And I'm like, who the hell okayed this? And you could tell it was one of those pamphlets that they give out at trainings and conferences. And it's like, this is what we're teaching professionals on how to engage and what to expect from Black people. So I agree 100%, Elijah. We have to approach with um, some sort of aggression, but as you said before, it, it just shouldn't be. And it's because people don't care. I'm still processing what you were saying, but yeah, it's because they don't care. And up until now, they haven't had to, but thankfully to people like Dr. Hall and Zena and all of the other amazing Black and people of color that are taking space in healthcare, end of life and other spaces, this dialect is changing. Before we close, um, I want to revisit what you said earlier about legacy, Zena, and ask you both a personal question. Other than being a well-loved woman, a well-loved Black woman, Zena, what is it that you want your legacy to be? Mm, and what plans are you putting in place to ensure that it happens? 
That's such a good question. Um, ah, that's a good question because there, there's so much there, but one of the things I think, um, I, I wrote a play um, that was that was at Synchronicity Theater in May and it's called um, uh, The Free Black Woman's Guide to Death and Dying. Um, and it's a it, and it's a two person play and it's a, a death doula um, and a woman who's making her death plan. And one of the things that was so important to me and that was to see the joy and the love and the life that black women have outside of trauma and racism and difficulty. And so I think that is one of the things that I want my legacy to be is that like, I, for the most part, I am a happy person. I am a joyful person. I am a grateful person. And I think so often because for very good reason, um, like we we begin conversations with our trauma um and with our you know with the things that we've experienced negatively but but i really love to create spaces where people are able to talk about like one of my favorite things when i was a hospice chaplain was to ask couples how they met or to ask how they proposed you know how were they were proposed to ask how they came up with their child's name or how what they were called what they called their grandmother those kinds of questions that get to the our legacy our family our stories like outside of all the things and so working in this work um because we work so much with inequality and inequity and we work to promote justice which is wonderful work i think sometimes we miss the inherent like joy that it is to be a black person in this you know in our lives to where we come from, um, in our bones, you know, that is just this joy and resilience and love. And so that's, I definitely want that to be a part of my legacy. Beautiful. What about you, Dr. Hall, other than being known as a, a, I, the best word that's coming to me right now is a shaman. (laughs) Um, what do you want your legacy to be? Yes, I appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, this has been great. I, I really want to just thank you, you know, for this. And it's really nice to be with two, you know, beautiful Black women, two, as, they, as we would say in the village, two Black queens, right, who are holding it down. So, and really, honestly, that is, that is the, our goal. Like, we are, I strive to be a king, that is protecting his family and his village. And that includes black queens. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have enough time on this uh, podcast or, you know, to be talking about some other things that we need to talk about in our, in our communities um, because they're trying to divide us. They're trying to break us apart and there's so much happening to do that. But that's, that is what it is for me, you know? Um, and in terms of my legacy, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a proverb. It's a Sudanese proverb. It says, um, a large chair does not make a king right? So just because you have these things, just because whatever, right? You, you're not a, 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 a someone, you don't have a leg, you're not a, 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 an honorable person simply because of the furniture, the things you wear, right? You're an honorable person because of the things that you do, your deeds. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, um, me having, um, being able to access X, Y, and Z, or, you know, do these things. I, I want to do them but I want to be able to leave something as well. And so I think that that's something that we don't often, are not often able to do, is actually create those pathways um, of, of, of lineage and legacy um, and, and, and kind of, you know, since I have children, I'm often thinking about, okay, right? What are my children, what's being left to my children? How am I setting them up? Um, to be as successful as possible, you know, um, where can they call home is something that I'm uh, constantly, constantly thinking about. So I think that's, uh, for me, very important. Um, And, you know, because I want them to be in a place, I want them to understand what it feels like to be in a place where they are loved, where they are cared for, where being Black is celebrated 
uh, where, the, where where they you know are are lifted up and um, you know and and to call that place home. I think that's a part of the legacy that I want to leave for them. In addition to what Zena said, I also uh, am releasing my um, instrumental album uh, next week on. Uh, on streaming platforms, which is crazy. So, um, you know, being able to do that work, um, you know, and there's a track on there that I, I made for a friend who was like, you know, um, my, I just, she just lost her grandmother. And, uh, you know, I, I made this track for her. It's the last track on the album. Um, but that work is so important to me as well. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think that I wanna do more of that kind of work being able to translate, transcribe, and place these emotions into, into artistry. Or Dr. Hall, what is the name of your album? Ooh. And where can we find it? It's called Amaso and Gumbo. Mm. <laughs> uh, and you can find it on Spotify and Apple Music. Okay, definitely. And as I was saying to Zena, just thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Hall. And I can't wait to have you back on as an, a guest again so we can talk about some of the challenges in our community that I know that you're so passionate about. And we can discuss ways that we're evolving and share stories and storytell and just learn, grow, and evolve together. Thank you so much. Name of your play. And will you be hosting it again anytime soon? Yeah, I, I am. Um talking with different theaters to have it. It's called the Free Black Woman's Guide to Death and Dying. Um, and it was uh, through Synchronicity has like a playwright, Emerging Playwrights Incubator Program. And so it was such a wonderful opportunity to get to see it out in the world. So I was really grateful for that. Um, I feel so full, like my heart and my spirit feels so full. I was not expecting this. Um, as we know, behind the scenes, we actually had Brandy and Elijah scheduled, but the universe, the spirits, the ancestors knew what was most powerful and most impactful in this moment. So I'm just so grateful to you again, Zena, for oh. your willingness to step in, your vulnerability and sharing, and just for sharing your beautiful story and your spirit. Elijah, it is always, or Dr. Hall, I'm sorry, Dr. Hall, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. And for those of you that are listening and want to find out more about Ms. Zena Regis or Dr. Elijah Hall, their information will be listed in the description for this podcast or video. Thank you all so much for listening. Live life, love hard, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. To learn more about The Grave Woman, visit www.thegravewoman.com. Live life, love hard, We'll talk to you next time.